Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. People that talk about like what do psychedelics mean, it's often defined as a compound or a substance that is mind manifesting. So it kind of leads you to have like new perspectives or ways of thinking about yourself and about the world. But there's all this interesting potential for like rewriting the script of your life, especially when there's been trauma or addictions or problems or, you know, an unfortunate like upbringing. I'm not saying that psychedelics are for everybody. They're not. But they represent some interesting potential in healthcare and medicine. Welcome to series 11 of the Not Perfect podcast, a show that's here to share conversations with world-leading thinkers to help us grow, stretch our minds, thrive, and heal from within. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author of Happy Not Perfect and entrepreneur. I've spent the last decade exploring how we can live better, support our mental health better, expand our consciousness, and feel full even when things feel turbulent. I hope you enjoy the show. On today's show, I am interviewing Dr. Brent Turnipseed. He is the co-founder of Roots Behavioral Health, with the initial goal of making psychiatric care more accessible to Central Texans. He also serves as their medical director. He's a board-certified psychiatrist with a deep interest into innovative approaches to providing behavioral health care through the forms of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. Dr. Turnipseed co-authored the first observational study for ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, and this is what today's interview is about, the science and research behind ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Is this the future of mental health care? Should we be cautious about it? What can we expect from ketamine therapy and the future? Who is it right for? And many more questions I have had brewing, waiting to interview such a pioneering figure in the field. I think we would all agree mental health care is problematic. The solutions are not currently working in their format that they are available right now. Otherwise, we wouldn't have such skyrocketing increasing rates of mental health. So I'm really excited that there are new options becoming more widely available. And I think the first port of call is to ensure more of us are educated about the options available so we can help ourselves and other people live the happiest and healthiest life possible. What's a favorite quote you return to often and why? There's a few quotes that come to me from time to time. Each of them, of course, like fits the situation or whatever's happening in my life at the moment. But uh, one that I wanted to share on the podcast is by Marcus Aurelius, so the famous Stoic uh, philosopher, emperor of Rome. And so the quote is, the impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way. And so the, the idea of this is the obstacle is the way. And there's a writer, Ryan Holiday, who I believe is based here in Austin as well. And he wrote this book, The Obstacle is the Way, kind of talking about stoic writings and about how adversity and challenges, I mean, not that we need to make light of every tragedy that comes our way, but that 
most of us grow and become stronger and learn by error, learn by mistakes and learn by tragedy. So I, I think that's like a good thing to remind ourselves from time to time, because all of us personally and professionally are, are going to face adversity in some fashion or in some degree every day of our lives. Just thinking about how difficult it is to stay in the place of discomfort when the human brain wants us to run back to familiarity, even if that's not the right thing to do. What are your thoughts on that? That's right. And I mean, I'll probably reference my kids because I feel like you learn so much as as a person kind of watching your children. If you're a parent, and you have kids, you kind of learn a lot about being a human through your kids. Like if you want to take them to learn to do soccer, they're scared. It's hard. It's challenging. They don't like it. Right. But once they're pushed outside their comfort zone a little bit, they often decide after the fact that, you know, this wasn't so bad and I'm glad I tried it. At least I, at least I gave it a try or I exposed mm. myself to something uncomfortable. So even at you know, a young age, you're watching children do this, you realize that, okay, again, we don't need to expose them to things that are too stressful or too much, but a little bit of stress, a little bit of discomfort, I mean, always seems to make us better for it and stronger for it. And mm. I think that's a way to build resilient resiliency is through like some kind of challenges, you know, be they small or large every day. I mean, that's just how we grow. Often just the reminder of that to just be able to stay in that difficult situation can be all the support people need. But are there any other tools that you invite people to use when they are in those really tough moments and all they want to do is run back to what was? So like for me personally, I, you know, use stoicism. Mm. It kind of came to me in middle age. These sort of stoic quotes kind of are all about being present, being mindful of the moment, not thinking too far ahead, not getting stuck in thinking too much about what didn't turn out right in the past. So I think mindfulness, being present is like a great technique or tool. Stoicism helps with that. But there's, you know, many books that talk about mindfulness, mindfulness meditation. And I'm not saying everybody can solve their problems by meditating. But I think like, that's a very low cost, accessible way for people to just kind of do a a reality check in your mind about like, hey, what's actually going on with me right now in my mind, in my body. And if it's too distressing, if a person's like, you know, I just can't do this. Okay, maybe they need to, you know, be around friends or you know, some social support or see a mental health professional like ourselves or a counselor or a therapist. But short of that, I'm always recommending to people that they really consider some kind of mindfulness based meditation practice if it makes sense to them. What's life lesson you've been reminded of recently and why? So I reference my kids again. So I have, I have a, a five-year-old son and a seven-year-old daughter. It's my favorite job in the world is actually being a dad. I wouldn't have thought I'd love this, but I love being a dad, love, you know, trying to model for them. And that's just it. If you're a parent, you're reminded that, you know, what I'm doing is I'm modeling behaviors for my children all the time. What I do, what choices I make, what kind of language I use, what foods I eat, you know, whether or not I'm picking up and looking at my cell phone. And so the other day I share interest about being careful about not overusing technology, placing healthy guardrails around, you know, digital and cell phone use. And here I was reading the news in the morning to start the day on my phone. And, you know, I remember my daughter turned over to me like dad trying to get my attention. And I thought, oh, like I got to put this down right now. So it's very humbling. You're, you're often humbled by children and reminded that, you know, if, if I want them to have and embody certain values as they grow, I mean, I can't expect them to do that unless I've or my wife have modeled the kind of behaviors we want them to value ourselves. We have to walk the walk. How do you define the soul? And I'm really interested in asking you this because especially with the therapies you work with, 
I'm sure the soul comes into it. So what's been your exploration of that? Yeah, so I'm a psychiatrist and, you know, the breakdown of like the root of the word psychiatrist, I believe the literal translation of a psychiatrist is the healer of souls. Mm. And when I decided on this specialty years ago, a good friend of mine said, do you realize you're supposed to be the healer of souls? And that sounded like impossible <laughs> and heavy to me. And then, you know, I started doing this kind of work. And so um, what I believe the soul means or how I, I come to understand it is kind of weird in my case because it's informed by being Catholic, but it's also informed by meditation practice. And it's also informed by our work with therapeutic psychedelics now, which have, you know, researchers talk a lot about this, that psychedelics really give you like an insight into what consciousness is like, including like transpersonal consciousness, like maybe this mm. idea that our energy of life force is kind of interconnected with others. So I guess like my de my best definition that I can think of is our, our soul is like this life essence, life force that is manifest in consciousness. After that, it gets fuzzy and who knows, is it really connected to other life forms, other energies outside the planet, across the galaxy, the universe? I don't know, but it's a really nice notion to think about and believe. Yeah, it really is. For those that are unfamiliar with the word transpersonal, what does that mean? Yeah, so like the idea that like my soul or my life force extends outside my body and goes across to other like forms or beings. I think this is the idea. It's kind of getting outside the body and, and stretching out like to some other like realm or dimension. I mean, I know this is more about like what you believe and not like scientific proof. But what's fascinating is like if you look at the work that researchers and clinicians are doing with psychedelics and people that research and study uh, meditation talk about a similar theme that people on a psychedelic journey often have this experience where they leave their body, they leave their mind and they feel like they're connected to other beings, entities or places or times. I mean, it's very, the word that often is mentioned is ineffable. It's like really hard to put this into words, like what we're talking about or what we experience if a person's had a firsthand journey or experience, they might say, oh, yes, I kind of know what you're getting at. But this comes up and, you know, then it makes you think about religion, how many like forms of religion often talk about mysteries. And I think even in some ancient way, you know, Catholics talk about the mysteries we celebrate or the mysteries we meditate on. And I think the mystery idea is this idea that like it's so hard for anyone to really truly know. And this is like the great question, you know, as part of our like life and existence, like, what is it? Where do we go? Where do we come from? And again, back to the kids, my kids are getting to the point now where they're starting to ask these questions. And it's really difficult to give them an answer with certainty. So usually I say, we think we don't know where this is what we suppose. And I think, you know, on a really small level, a good way to understand transpersonal is the how contagious emotions are, right? You know, suddenly it's this shared emotion that may not have anything to do with you and yet someone can transfer it to you just by being in the same environment or necessarily not even in the same environment. Look at the pandemic of how quickly fear spread or when something happens in the world and we all have this emotional feeling and it suggests that we are all connected in some way, shape or form. It's funny, you mentioned fear. I almost brought a quote about like stoic quote that also related to the famous FDR quote about only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And I mean, I see this every day still. People just wrapped mm. up in you know, like a phobic existence. And we've seen a lot of that since the pandemic. And luckily, people seem to be emerging from it. I don't see as many like nervous behaviors as I used to. And I don't just mean like necessarily connected to like getting sick from a virus, but 
we are a very like anxious society. Uh, when I say society, I mean like Western society. This has been talked about in our work for years too. Like where did this epidemic of anxiety come from? And there's probably many mm-hmm. contributing factors for it, but people work hard. They have lots of goals. They want to be successful. They want to learn. And, you know, in the Western world, we push ourselves very hard and people are just often anxious, often stressed. So yeah, I'm all about encouraging not to get outside your comfort zone, but to not allow yourself to live in fear. This brings me to a question I've been dying to ask you. In many ways, we've never had so much mental support on offer. And yet, even today, I read that 75% of all suicides are men. And the numbers just continue to get catastrophically worse. What is happening? Why is this additional help clearly not working? Yeah, right. So great question, because like, here it is 2022, you would think with all of our knowledge and all the shared information we have through the internet or the interwebs and all these great technological breakthroughs we've had in medicine and healthcare, you'd think we'd be in a better position than we are at this point in our history. And yet depression and suicide rates have steadily risen, at least in the U.S., for the last 30 years. And they were beginning an uptick, I mean, well before the pandemic happened. And this was like a frequent topic of discussion, again, before COVID came, Uh, at least in our field, people were talking a lot about this epidemic of depression and suicide. And, you know, you can find graphs that kind of graph the the data on this online. And if you look at the graph, the rates shoot up in the mid to late 90s, then they kind of plateau a bit, and then they shoot up again around 2005, 6, 7. And from there, they keep going up steadily. And so this is just speculation. But like, when you think about what was happening in the world around those times, in the mid late nineties, this is when the internet kind of became a thing. I was an undergrad in college. I remember, you know, going to the library and seeing how to get online for the first time. This is like 95 or 96. Mm. And then in 2000, what, five or six, you have the release of the iPhone, the first smartphone. Mm. So you got to wonder, did mental health start getting worse as people got more connected and spent more time online? And did it get much, much worse once everybody had you know, a personal tracking device and computer in your pocket or your purse all the time within six feet of you, like every waking moment. So again, I'm not saying that's necessarily like the primary reason or cause, but you have to wonder, like given that time frame, and if you look at how those rates change over time. And so, yeah, it's disturbing. And then the pandemic comes, people are stressed for a good reason. Then there's financial security all over the globe. And on top of that, people are isolated. To me, it was just a recipe for just a disaster for mental health, just, you know, getting out of control. And that's kind of what we've seen. And fortunately, there's been a proliferation of telemedicine. So for some people, it's easier to access mental health care or seeing a psychiatrist or a therapist. But at least in in this country, there's a tremendous shortage of providers. There just aren't enough providers Mm -hmm. to meet the demands and particularly treatment for depression. But after that, Mm. different anxiety conditions, but depression rates have just been out of control for the last decade or so. And how do you define someone as depressed? Because, you know, this word, I think some people can use it quite flippantly, you know, oh, feeling so depressed today. And obviously there is a huge difference between that and actually clinical depression that you would recognize in someone. Yeah. So uh, when we think about mood, so mood conditions include depression or anxiety. There's different kinds of anxiety like OCD or PTSD or panic disorder, that sort of thing. 
and the way I view it, all these mood states are kind of are on a spectrum. So you can have mm. very, you know, mild sadness or blues. You can be down or sad for a few days and maybe that's a good thing. Maybe your body's telling you that something's wrong and you're supposed to pay attention. But when that pervasive sad mood state lasts for a particular amount of time, at least the way we classify and define it, usually it's two weeks or longer, having a constellation of symptoms and those symptoms you're experiencing are causing like a major change in your ability to function in some major way. So they're impairing your function, impairing your ability to function, like in school, work, relationships, that sort of thing. If you put all that together, then that's depression. But yeah, it's a difficult thing to pin down for some people because a lot of people, it's normal to feel sad. And you know, the human condition includes sadness from time to time. You just hope you don't get stuck mm. feeling sad and apathetic or without energy or the ability to not get things done for a very long time. But yeah, that's in a nutshell, that's kind of what depression is. What are your thoughts on this controversy around chemical imbalance, not chemical imbalance? Because I feel like there is such competing research and for a long time, people would, I guess, label themselves as, oh, I have this because I have a chemical imbalance, which in some ways is quite limiting and actually can trap people in this idea that they've got something continually wrong with them. And then I guess there's other literature that says that's completely not true. I think this thinking about chemical imbalance became really prominent after SSRIs came on the market. So the first mm. SSRI was Prozac or fluoxetine, which I think came out like in 1987 or 88. Prozac was kind of revolutionary at the time. And we knew that it led to like kind of a boost of serotonin transmission or flow. So serotonin is a neurotransmitter in our brain. And so people thought, well, if I feel better after taking Prozac, then I must have a serotonin deficiency. I must have a serotonin imbalance. Then different kinds of antidepressants came on the market, like SNRIs. So SNRIs would boost serotonin and another neurotransmitter called norepinephrine, then people thought, well, if Prozac didn't work for me, but if I take Effexor, which is an SNRI, and I feel better, okay, then I must have a serotonin and norepinephrine imbalance, and on and on and on, right? So the, the problem with this thinking is that it turns out, yeah, like there's a lot of competing research that says, you know, that may not be actually how antidepressants help people. It might be by different mechanisms. And... I'm definitely in the school of thought that, okay, maybe your serotonergic neurons, maybe something's wrong with them. Okay, right. But what could be wrong with them? Why aren't they working properly? It's thought that there's probably dozens, if not hundreds of different subtypes of depression among like people, among humans, which is one reason why it's difficult to treat depression if there's many different potential etiologies or causes. But it certainly ain't just it's all serotonin or not. It's more complicated than that. So I, in the work we do at our clinic, I definitely believe, and this has really got traction in the last few years, that I think depression probably is kind of more of a disorder or like a condition or an illness of our immune system not working properly. And so our mm. immune system, you know, regulates our brain, regulates all parts of our body. So we've been kind of thinking about it in a very reductionistic way, like, oh, it's just got to be the brain, it's just got to be serotonin. Well, it might be the brain serotonin to some extent, but maybe because our immune system isn't working properly, it's leading to some sort of dysfunction with how serotonin is regulated. And so it's become apparent that many people, especially with chronic depression that are difficult to treat, if you do lab work on them very, very often, 
they have inflammatory cytokines, so inflammatory chemicals in the body, showing that your body is in this chronic state of inflammation. Many things can cause inflammation, like being overweight or having a healthy diet. I mean, the list is long. Or having conditions like you know lupus or fibromyalgia, diabetes, heart disease. These are all pro-inflammatory disease states. Well, so they kick off these chemicals called cytokines. These cytokines can cause damage in your body. And these cytokines, turns out, can easily cross what they call the blood-brain barrier. So they can get into your brain and cause damage or harm. Brain disease, brain illness, mental health problems, depression, OCD. I mean, not everything and maybe not for every person. But I think that's a big piece of the story that's been kind of overlooked for a long time. And this, I guess, is why your innovative approaches are so critical. Like I mentioned some of them in the introduction, but the fact that you really focus on healthy brain diet, exercise, this quite 360 approach to helping someone manage and navigate through their depression, which brings me to psychedelics, which is something that you specialize in psychedelic assisted therapy. What are they when we even say the word psychedelic? And why now are they having this resurgence? I know that when people talk about psychedelics, they probably think, ah, illegal drugs. There may be fear around it. How do you navigate this? So psychedelics, um, big topic. People that talk about like, what do psychedelics mean? It's often defined as a compound or a substance that is mind manifesting. So it kind of leads you to have like new perspectives or ways of thinking about yourself and about the world. Okay, that's just kind of like a, a summation of like how you could describe a psychedelic. But as we know, psychedelics are all sorts of different compounds. They're each are very, very different. So classically, people think about things like LSD, or they think about psilocybin, which comes from psychedelic mushrooms. But ketamine also has psychedelic properties, even though it's not from a plant. It's a very different compound. It's an anesthetic. Then there's MDMA or ecstasy, which is also considered psychedelic, which leads to a very different experience for the person using the substance or on the journey. But what do they all have in common? They all have in common this idea that there's this kind of disconnection from your ordinary waking consciousness. So your script that's going through your mind, your kind of awaking ego state, I guess we could say, is disrupted by psychedelics. And suddenly that ego state is taken offline or put aside or brought down or kind of inhibited a bit, then what happens is people's true self, like self with a capital S, kind of emerges and you have the potential and ability to learn more about yourself, learn about why you are the way you are, why you've done certain things the way you do them, like certain behaviors or choices in life. Uh, I mean, I'm generalizing, but there's all this interesting potential for like rewriting the script of your life, especially when there's been mm. trauma or addictions or problems or, you know, an unfortunate like upbringing. I'm not saying that psychedelics are you know, going to fix all the ills in the world and that they're for everybody. They're not, but they represent some interesting potential in healthcare and medicine. So trying to connect it to like the latter part of what you're asking about, like why, you know, why is this in our field now? I think in part because for the last two, three decades, psychiatry has not had that many new medications come to the market that were that impressive. And antidepressants, each one works maybe about 30% of the time for all people, which is why if anyone's seen a psychiatrist or gotten treatment for depression, they know that you do this game of having to try many different things until you feel somewhat better or this patchwork of taking three or four different medicines just to feel functional 
which is far from mm. ideal. And those medicines always have some sort of side effects, most of which are usually unpleasant. So along comes the psychedelics. And ketamine is kind of one of the interesting ones because it's FDA approved for anesthesia. So there's this legal way and framework to research it, to study it. It's very difficult to study the other compounds like LSD and psilocybin because in the U.S., they're classified by the DEA as what we call a Schedule One substance. So you can study and research them, but it's very difficult to do so. You have to apply and get a special license or permit. And, and research is being done on those compounds, whereas ketamine, as long as you are talking to the patient about how this is an off-label use, so it's not on-label, not approved by FDA, if you talk about you know, the risks and benefits, the usual safety things you review with any medication, you can treat people and prescribe ketamine right now. And so I think clinicians, us, researchers, and, you know, business owners are learning like, well, ketamine is kind of an interesting prototype for what mental health clinic of the future might look like incorporating a treatment or psychedelic treatments. Ketamine, again, is very different from the others. It's much shorter acting, which makes it easier to use in an office setting. Mm. But we are, we're in this like interesting time of revolution. And we were mentioning inflammation. This is one reason why ketamine is so fascinating. So ketamine works by a few different mechanisms in, in mm. how it treats depression. But one of those, undoubtedly, it's a powerful anti-inflammatory medication. It's a powerful wow. immunomodulator. So those harmful cytokines I mentioned that can find their way into the brain and cause damage, it can actually suppress those like powerfully. So if you have somebody and we do blood work and they've got an elevation of these cytokines and we give them ketamine, they're one of the most likely groups of people that are going to respond and say, I feel so much better because we're like addressing that inflammation. Wow. So standard antidepressants probably don't work like that. And if they do, they don't work to the extent that ketamine does. So I think ketamine and other psychedelics are just kind of changing the way we think about treating brain disease states or illness in the first place. Again, it's not just a chemical imbalance. There's probably so many more ways to think about how to you know, make our brains healthier and how to heal brains when they're not working right. God, that's fascinating. So what is the format of delivery of ketamine? Do people take it like a pill every single day or is it always with a professional? So this is one of the most interesting things about ketamine. It's incredibly diverse in how you can take it. So ketamine has multiple routes of administration. It can be given intravenously. It can be drawn up in a syringe and injected intramuscularly, typically in the deltoid muscle in the shoulder. It can be compounded into a nasal spray. It can be compounded into a sublingual lozenge or tablet. People can even compound it into cream that they put like on sore muscles, like very small amounts, but like can be used for muscle aches or muscle pain. And I've heard you can even compound it in the form of a rectal suppository. That's not popular, but <laughs> it can be done. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I'm kind of joking, but, but that is true. Like it can be put into all these forms. And so at, at our clinic, we only give ketamine through the IV or intramuscular route in the office. But there are companies, there are other practitioners across the country that prescribe ketamine for home use, which is becoming more controversial, which is probably a good thing. I think we need to be careful about how we're delivering and administering ketamine. But for us, we believe it's safest and best practice in, in the office with someone at your side, just in case uh, you don't feel well or you have an adverse reaction. Are you using it as a kind of lubrication for psychotherapy at the same time? Or is it just, ah, you take ketamine and then a bit like antidepressants, it helps the brain do its thing by itself. 
So we started our ketamine service in 2018. And I think we've done or delivered over 4,000 sessions at this point. So we have a lot of data. And we're going to launch a study in which we go back retrospectively and analyze our outcomes to find out like what is working best, what dose is optimal. And in our clinic, we'll give ketamine to patients with a psychotherapist present, or we'll administer it without a psychotherapist present, but they're being checked on often by a medical assistant or a nurse. We don't really know with evidence which is better. We suspect that with psychotherapy probably leads to a better outcome, which is why we want to analyze that data and do the study and find out like what are the outcomes. But yes, if you give ketamine to a person, it's going to alter their consciousness. They're going to have this psychedelic experience or journey that lasts 45 minutes to an hour. We block or book a two-hour session. So the therapist is sitting with them for the first hour if they're doing it with therapy. And in the second hour, they, they kind of come back into their conscious present like body and state you know they feel a little fuzzy like they just took something but they're lucid enough to have like an intelligent conversation and at that point yes the processing begins and they talk about their experience and my wife is one of our ketamine therapists i you know hear and know a lot about how the sessions go and i've been in many myself and it's quite fascinating to watch you know patients you may have worked with for a long time who are very reluctant to talk about certain things or very reluctant to bring up or talk about trauma, for example, suddenly after the ketamine, it becomes pretty effortless to like engage and talk about painful things, mm-hmm. difficult things, you know, face traumas, face fears, and then work through and grow and learn from the experience and learn from the insights that came up on the ketamine. But even if people give very low doses of ketamine, some practitioners embody a technique they call a psycholytic psychotherapy. So psycholytic psychotherapy implies you're giving a very, very low dose just to loosen somebody up and relax them almost like a tranquilizer. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you're talking more freely. Some people compare it to like hypnosis, you know, way, way back when Mm -hmm. Freud and Jung were experimenting with hypnosis and therapy. Hypnosis was a way to kind of get to an altered mind state, right? To like access memories and access feelings that are uncomfortable when you're like in your waking conscious state. And so psychedelics may be utilized like for a similar purpose. What are the results you're noticing? Are you seeing a more rapid personal development in people? Or, and I guess this kind of this question feeds into when mental health appears broken, is it the way someone is thinking about their life? that is broken? Or is it this biological imbalance, like the inflammation? Because if the root is never really addressed, then they are consistently interpreting reality in a way that could be more stressful than it needs to be. Yeah. So I I think the fact that we've seen lots of people get ketamine without therapy and improve and feel better, we know that the mechanism of the medicine itself, like maybe reducing inflammation, and there's some other mechanisms too, are probably helping heal depression and I can go into some nitty gritty if you want about like what's happening yeah, brain yeah, on yeah. ketamine. So there's this concept called maladaptive memories. So as, as we grow and age and learn and experience life, you know, we're kind of writing down a history and memory script in our brain, life experiences, life lessons, traumatic, good, bad, whatever. And so we've got this story in our mind. This is my story, right? And so sometimes those stories aren't so good. And they can be maladaptive, leading to like bad feelings about yourself, things you negatively tell yourself every day, I'm no good, no one loves me, things like that, right? I'm just giving examples. Or maybe that's why a person reaches for and drinks too much alcohol every day. They're kind of stuck in this behavior pattern script. 
So ketamine and psychedelics, it appears that it seems to like wipe that maladaptive memory script away, or at least it gives the potential for it. And it gives you the ability to kind of like write a new story. And so there's some great analogies that people use like to talk about this and psychedelics ability to do this. But my wife, Andrea, she likes to say that taking ketamine with a therapist is sort of like using the Etch-a-Sketch, if you know what an Etch-a-Sketch is. So it's this tablet, you know, that kids draw on and it's got these lines on it. And if you shake the Etch-a-Sketch, it wipes mm. it clean and you can make new lines, right? So the idea is like, here you go in, in the, the session with ketamine and you've like wiped your Etch-a-Sketch clean. And now when you're talking with your therapist processing these maladaptive memories, you may be able to like rewrite how like the meaning and your own history in your mind. And you might be able to change how you feel about yourself. What is the script you tell yourself every day that may change. And as a result, you might have an easier time changing a behavior like quitting alcohol. And there's some fascinating studies that have come out of good universities here in the US in the last few years. Columbia University did one, I think Mount Sinai did one, showing that ketamine infusions with some psychotherapy support afterwards were very effective for opiate use disorder, alcohol use disorder, and cocaine use disorder, which is interesting because ketamine itself can be misused or abused. It is a controlled substance. But I, I love this idea that it kind of turns the substance use treatment model on its head, the idea that you can give a substance that could be abused for someone with a substance use problem in order to become sober. I just, I love this idea. It just like doesn't make sense for most of us. Like what? That's not supposed to happen. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. How addictive is ketamine? So ketamine certainly can be addictive and abuse of ketamine is pretty well known. In fact, you know, I was thinking about your, your program and, you know, I read a lot about ketamine issues around the world. And there's a couple of hotspots where ketamine abuse is very common. One's the UK and one is Hong Kong. And I mean, I can't speak to why those are commonly like used or abused in both those countries or both those regions. But it makes me worry about where things might be headed in the U.S. if we're not careful about how we deliver ketamine and how mm. carefully we regulate it. There probably should be some regulation. So if a person's only getting their ketamine in the office, to me, that's a good guardrail for safety about dosing and frequency and how often someone's getting it. If a person's taking ketamine often or every day, and if their use is not restricted, in other words, they have like mm. a nasal spray and they can just squirt it up their nose anytime they want, there does seem to be a trend of if you give these prescriptions to a lot of people, it's not that uncommon for the, it to be misused. I'm all about access to care. I think it's very practical to give people at home ketamine financially, but I don't know if it's a good blanket approach to treating everybody with depression by mm. shipping them ketamine for home use. I'm concerned that it may threaten like the integrity of like this treatment mm. in the long run. So ketamine can be misused or abused. It's not like physically addictive, something like cocaine typically is, or a physical addiction like opiates can be. Ketamine, it seems, tends to be almost more of a psychological addiction. 
people that experience it almost kind of want to go back to that first high they have, or they kind of want to mentally escape with ketamine. So if not used properly, like it absolutely can be misused and it can harm your brain and it can harm your bladder in particular if you take too much ketamine or abuse it. And what actually is happening to the brain and body? I mean, for example, why would a bladder potentially be affected if somebody was overdosing ketamine? Yeah, so there's like metabolites. Um, I've been to a conference where experts will talk about like the bladder damage. There's certain like chemicals or metabolites that are released from ketamine that can like cause damage to like the lining of the bladder, the, the cells of the bladder lining, which are called epithelial cells. They can be literally damaged by too much ketamine. But if it stays under a certain amount, it doesn't seem to like tip the balance and cause too much mm. damage. If it's like a medical dose, usually it's been fine. And, you know, those 4,000 treatments we've delivered, we've never had a bladder issue. But back to like what's happening on the brain with ketamine. So this is super fascinating. And you can see images of this online. So ketamine probably works by a few different mechanisms to help the brain heal, especially if we're talking about depression. So it's FDA approved as a general anesthetic. And we've known for a long time that its main mechanism of action is something we would call, again, I'm going to get technical for a minute, is a, it's an NMDA receptor antagonist. So there's a type of receptor in our brain called an NMDA receptor. That stands for N-methyl-D-aspartate receptor. And so if it's an antagonist, that means it binds to that receptor and it's blocking its ability to do its thing. And so what does that lead to? It leads to this change in the flow of a neurotransmitter in our brain called glutamate. And then there's all these complex downstream effects. Ultimately, what happens is it leads to something called synaptogenesis. So our brain cells are called neurons. At the end of each nerve cell is a space where that nerve cell communicates with another nerve cell. And that space in between them is called the synapse. Well, if people have chronic depression or chronic stress, we've seen through imaging studies that these synapses don't work very well. The synaptic connections are lost. They seem to atrophy. They seem to not be growing or working properly. And so that complex mechanism I just described with ketamine it reverses that chronic stress to the synapses and it causes new connections to form in our neurons. So in a sense, it kind of may heal like damaged brain cells, which is really fascinating if you think about it. That's one mechanism. The other mechanism is the anti-inflammatory mechanism I talked about, which seems to help improve brain function if a person has chronic inflammation. And then the third way is by disrupting these circuits in the brain, like neuronal circuits that connect with these scripts and maladaptive memories I talked about. So it's all three of those things, I believe, changing the script, changing the maladaptive memories, reducing inflammation, and ultimately leading to new synapses and new connections forming in our brain. So it's a highly complex, fascinating medicine that it can do all these things. So I think when it was FDA approved in 1970, they probably had no idea that ketamine could do all these things back then. It wasn't until you know 30 plus years later that we started to understand that, oh, ketamine seems to have positive effects on the brain. So if I'm understanding correctly, it is a fantastic drug to help people learn new things because it's really encouraging these new synapses to be developed. So how does this relate to neuroplasticity? Does it in a way make your brain more plastic? That's exactly what happens. So the synaptogenesis, you could say it's making the brain more plastic, which means it enhances learning. The neurotransmitter I mentioned, it's affected by ketamine. The glutamate circuits typically are involved in memory and learning. So it stands to reason that 
it's not that you take ketamine and you know learn calculus. That's not what we're talking about, I think. We're talking about almost, it helps you unlearn wrong things. It helps you unlearn things that you don't want to do anymore so that you can kind of like have the space and the ability to like track a new path for yourself or a new behavior or a new healthy habit. And that's one thing I've noticed since we started our ketamine service. And I think the ketamine work pushed me more to think about holistic psychiatry. And it's because so fascinating to see this in patients. They'll have their ketamine experiences. And you know you can see on documentaries where they've done research with psilocybin and LSD too, something similar occurs. People have this life-changing, great psychedelic journey or experience. And suddenly they have this desire and feeling like, I want to be healthier. Like I've never seen mm-hmm. anything like it as a physician before, where suddenly people have this desire just to gravitate towards healthy behaviors, which is what you want your patients to do. Of course, you don't want to just write a prescription forever, you want them ultimately to do things that lead to better health, better brain health, like eat healthier, exercise, in addition to like a long list of things we could mention that could improve your overall health and wellness. But psychedelics seem to orient people towards a more healthy perspective, which is really nice. And again, it's not a guarantee, but I've seen that over and over again, even if we didn't say, hey, I want you to take this and I want you to think about being a healthier person. No, you give them the ketamine or you give them the psychedelic And when they process and talk about their session, they're saying kind of on their own, wow, you know, I suddenly feel like I don't, I don't need to drink alcohol anymore. I don't see what it's doing for me. So I'm I'm ready to put that down. Even if that was not a goal of the therapy, you hear comments like this. So it's a fun time to do this work. You know, my worry with SSRIs is this idea that without really good psychotherapy, you are essentially signing up to a prescription for life. Is there any vulnerability of people having such amazing revelations with ketamine? People will have a top up, you know, they'll have a ketamine session once a year, for example. So there's actually an analogy here, even between ketamine and let's say Prozac, you know, SSRIs. And that is, you know, we're hoping to alleviate suffering and treat symptoms that a person's experiencing, like if we're talking about depression, person comes in, Mm. I'm very depressed, I I hate this, I want to get better. And we could prescribe Prozac. And, you know, I I should say that antidepressants work for many people, there's a caveat to that. And the caveat is, which is what I'll say about ketamine, whatever medicine helps bring you relief and improves a person's feeling better. Okay, that's fantastic. But that's never the end of the story, whether it's the ketamine Mm. or the SSRI. The end of the story should be, oh, now what what are all the things that a person needs to take stock in to improve Mm. like their overall like health and relationships or wellness, all that, right? Because if those things aren't addressed, even if it's ketamine, yeah, the person's probably going to get a ketamine maintenance session which is typically once a month. I don't know about indefinitely, but longer than you'd like to. And so the general trend that we do observe and see is the more people are doing to proactively improve their health, once they've gotten better, again, whether it's Prozac or ketamine, once they've gotten better, if that person does a lot of things to improve their overall brain health, they buy themselves a much, much better chance of being able to taper off and get off the medicine at some point or being on the medicine for less time. The big problem with antidepressants like Prozac is many people are prescribed them that have symptoms that aren't bad enough to take the medicine. That's one issue. Mm. And then the next issue is they're difficult to stop. They're difficult to get Mm. off of. They can cause withdrawal symptoms. But people are left on them for years. And there's been many good studies now showing that, at least for depression, 
the sweet spot for most people is if they're on an antidepressant and it helps them, they probably should try to get off that medicine somewhere between six and 12 months. So nine months being the sweet mm. spot. Even if they're feeling somewhat depressed, the data actually says if they see a therapist and again, get in a little bit of discomfort and push on to be healthier, they're more likely to not need that medicine. And they really do stand a good chance of getting off the medicine. But if they wait a year or longer, it gets harder and harder and harder to stop that medicine. So yes, many people take or prescribe the medicines without enough oversight, in my opinion. When new patients come to our clinic, this is one of my favorite things to tell patients or to tell my providers to tell their patients is say, hey, we're going to prescribe this medicine and treat your depression. But we want you to start thinking already about how about six to nine months from now, we want you to think about getting off this medicine. We don't want you to think mm. about being on it long term. Fortunately, that's a very welcome attitude now. When I started 14, 15 years ago, um, there was a general sense that, okay, if you recommend it, I'll take it. I'll just stay on it no matter what. And people weren't thinking that much about getting off medications and the long-term impacts. Now people think about that a lot more, which I think is a good thing. It's not black and white issue. Like the medicines really do help lots of people. The problem is they stay on them too long in most cases. What lifestyle interventions do you find the most powerful and necessary when people are recovering from trauma? They are in this process of dramatically changing their mental health. Well, going back, you know, one thing I kind of failed to mention about that trend of depression getting you know worse in the past 30 years, I focused on technology contributions. But I think it's uh, not hard to believe that we also have an obesity epidemic. People don't eat well. And they don't exercise enough in the U.S. I think in the U.S. it's something like at least 70% of adults do not meet the weekly requirements for exercise. And 70% of adults are also overweight or obese. When I just think about that statistic, it blows my mind because that was not true when I grew up in the 70s and 80s. So we've become a heavier, heavier population as time goes by. And so I think it has to start with you know, it's, it's the things that are difficult to change that people often don't want to face. But the reality is you have to like learn how to eat healthier. You have to avoid uh, too much sugars and refined carbs. People have to eat more fruits and vegetables, minimal amounts of meat, like all these basic things. Mm. A Mediterranean diet is one of the easiest diets to follow for people if they're confused about mm. what to follow. Mediterranean diet works well and is good for brain and heart health. Exercise, just walking. Walking gets the body going, makes you feel better. You, you release endogenous endorphins. You feel better. But exercise leads gradually to an increase of BDNF, so brain-derived neurotrophic factor. BDNF also leads to synaptogenesis in the brain, just like ketamine does. Wow. So you're kind of giving your brain the ability to like stay healthier and kind of prune mm. and have better, healthier connections just by exercising every day. And, I mean, I'm a runner. I'm really big in promoting running and fitness. But I'm also like, understand like not everybody's going to, you know, get shoes and go run every day, but getting their heart rate up, whatever activity is, it might be hard at first, but people will always feel better. I mean, so the diet and exercise, it's hard to ignore the biggest things. And then after that, I think it's taking stock in like, okay, what unhealthy other behaviors am I doing and how can I cut those back or place guardrails or limitations on them? Like technology use, for example. I mean, I can give you many other lifestyle examples, but diet and exercise you know, ranks at the top because they have immediate impacts on your brain health. I think it's easy to forget about these interventions and how powerful the simplest of things can be. 
you are incredible, such a great educator, and I have uh, probably a million more questions to ask you, but what is the best place for people to learn more, find you, follow you, and how can people support your work? The best place people can find us is our website, Roots, like Roots in the Ground, rootsbehavioralhealth.com. We operate two clinics in Austin. We're still growing. We're always growing because of demand. But going to our website is the easiest way to get a sense of like my philosophy to treating patients, to helping them, to empowering them to have like a healthier lifestyle. Um, There's a lot of basic tenets and ideas about our whole approach to helping people on the website. And there's hopefully a couple of research studies forthcoming in the next year. So hopefully uh, if we catch up again, Um, I'll have some publications to announce from our research. That would be really great. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Poppy. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Not Perfect Podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would deeply appreciate it if you wouldn't mind subscribing and leaving a review and perhaps maybe sending it to a friend who also might enjoy this episode. I can't tell you how grateful I am for those that share this podcast on their social media or with friends because it helps the show reach more listeners. I'd absolutely love to hear from you. So if you've had any thoughts or you want a specific guest coming up in future episodes just let me know shoot me a message on instagram or twitter it's just at poppy jamie and so until next time stay flexible stay true to you and stay leaning into love here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.